And here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Monday night, August 14th, 2017. Back in the studios in downtown Brooklyn. That, of course, was the English beat with Mirror in the Bathroom. We've got a big show to get to tonight. We've got Major League Baseball, uh, the return of the Subway Series between the Yankees and the Mets, uh, some trades that have happened in the last uh, week since we last did a show. We'll go around the majors and look at uh, some of these division races and uh, an unlikely new entrant into the American League wildcard team. And we'll talk about some NFL news and notes uh, now that the preseason is officially underway. But we start with interleague play, the Subway Series. Um, and we've alluded to this uh, on earlier shows. But interleague baseball needs to go. Needs to go. So it's, a, it's an idea that, it, that is past its, its prime. Uh, nobody cares anymore, really, about interleague baseball. And frankly, nobody really cares about the Subway Series. Or most Yankees fans that are friends of mine don't care. Most of my Met fan friends don't care. Um, and it's not just, you know, sort of bitter because the Mets are not very good this year and the Yankees are, are good. Even, even last year when the Mets were a pretty good team, the year prior when the Mets made the World Series... I, I, there's no, there's no more, there's, there's no, as, as my man Matt Dover so would say, there's no juice anymore to this series. I mean, there, there really isn't. And, you know, and, and 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 by the way, I feel bad for the Yankee fan that lives outside of the New York area and has to watch the atrocious ESPN production that you're going to get greeted to tonight. By the way, just get ready for seventeen thousand different camera angles and opinions from. Uh, uh, Aaron Boone and Jessica Mendoza as to why Aaron Judge is in a slump. Here's why, guys. It's called baseball. Uh, I believe I had this about two months ago. Aaron Judge is not a 340 hitter. Big surprise. But no, ESPN will to will will beat that horse of a story into the ground. I mean, they did it last night, by the way, during the Red Sox game. And they, they just, I just had it on for a second until I started doing this show. And that was the, of course, that was their lead-in with the cold open. Was, what's wrong with Aaron Judge? By the way, if anyone's paying attention, Giancarlo Stanton leading Major League Baseball with 42 home runs. And he, by the way, plays in Miami, which is not exactly a hitter's park. Again, I have nothing against Aaron Judge. Seems like a, a great young man. Nice kid. Humble. He's going to be a good player. But the hype around him is just off the chain. Anyway. I digress. Uh, I, I just, I don't care. And I certainly don't care... I mean, last week I did a show. I didn't even know the Mets were playing. Turns out they were playing the Rangers. Gee, there's an exciting... Wow. There's some real good history there. I, I mean, listen, 20 years ago, which was the first season of interleague play, it was exciting because it was new. But it's been 20 years. And by the way, the first couple of years of interleague play, they only did division against division. So AL East, NL East. That makes sense because there are some built-in geographic rivals there. So the Subway Series made some sense. And possibly, 
if Major League Baseball went back to that format where the divisions, only the divisions play each other, and there wasn't an interleague pl- game ever played every single day this season of the schedule, which it is now, then maybe some of that cachet would come back. But it's been completely diluted now. Nobody cares. Gee, I really want to see that Pirates-Royals matchup in, in August. I mean, it's ridiculous. So I have, I have very little interest in, in the Subway Series as, as sort of an event now. I mean, I'll watch some of these games, although I'm doing this show right now as we speak, as the first pitch is about to get thrown out here on Monday night. Um, because the Mets have finally called up Ahmed Rosario and Dom Smith, and I'd like to see you know their hopefully future shortstop or first baseman and see how they perform, you know, playing against a good team and a team that's in a playoff hunt like the Yankees, sure, even if they're playing a bad team. But I, I got to tell you, I, I watched about an inning of the, the, the three games they played against the Phillies this weekend. Now, maybe, maybe that's some growth. Maybe I'm finally, at 48 years old, displaying some personal growth here, that I'm not wasting away a beautiful day out by the beach watching the two worst teams in the National League East in the Mets and the Phillies. I'd like to think that that's the case, but probably not. But yeah, I mean, interleague play in general, no interest. And, you know, again, the, the Subway Series really just, just does not do it for me. Doesn't do it for me anymore. Um, more importantly... Obviously, all the games now for the Yankees down the stretch here matter. Uh, lost two out of three to the Red Sox over the weekend. Last night, particularly tough loss. Uh, a roll, you know, the Red Sox, uh, Yankees take the lead 2-1. Ninth inning, Chapman on the mound, looking to close it out. Take two or three, feeling good. And then uh, Rafael Devers, the, the stud third baseman, 20-year-old third baseman, for the Red Sox, is a lefty, no less, lefty hitter. Uh, you know, Rockets one to left center field for a home run to tie the game. Chapman comes back out for the 10th, walks a couple of guys. Girardi comes and gets him, which I think was the right move. He was up to 20-something pitches. And that's the thing with Chapman, and, and A.G. Will, will tell you this. When he doesn't have it, he does not have it. Like, he, once it's gone, it's gone. He can't find it. He's got to be almost in, like, perfect conditions weather-wise. He's got to kind of get like the first couple guys out. Once it starts to go, he, he very rarely does he recover. And especially when he starts to lose his control. So, you know, Girardi made the right move, I think, taking him out. And he brought in uh, Canley, who, you know, again, listen, it's all well and good to pitch well for the White Sox when you're playing, you know, the Royals in June and nobody cares because you're on a terrible team and there's about 18,000 people in the stands. It's quite another when you're in the cauldron of the rivalry with the Red Sox and you're now in mid-August and these games mean something. Now, I'm not saying he choked or anything like that, but it's you ha- it's different. I mean, the guy wouldn't be human, I don't think, if he didn't feel different, probably, when he, when he goes out on the mound. And so this is a guy who, again, struggled with control mightily when he was originally a Yankee in their minor league system, had really gotten it together and was having a really nice year for the White Sox. And he's not been terrible for the Yankees, but he's had a couple of these hiccups here where he's starting to walk guys. 
And walks are never a good idea, but boy, are they really a bad idea late in the game by relief pitchers. I mean, it seems like they almost, it almost always comes back to bite you in the ass when you walk guys out of the bullpen. And, you know, listen, that's, that's the trick, right? That's the trick to being a really good, you know, professional athlete is the mental side of it. I mean, this guy's got talent, and you can see he throws close to 100 miles an hour. He's got a good slider. And, you know, no question about it. But, you know, do you, do you calm the nerves? Do you calm the butterflies when the games actually mean something? When it's Sunday night baseball and there's 55,000 people, well, not anymore in Yankee Stadium, but, okay, let's say 40,000 people still in the stands and it's against the Red Sox, it's a lot different. So that was a tough loss for the Yankees last night. Now they should get the panacea, though, in the four games against the Mets. Although, not that the Mets lot pitching is, is, is any great shakes. I believe Rafael Montero is pitching tonight. Uh, DeGrom goes tomorrow. Then I think it's Lugo and, uh, is it Mats, maybe? But the Yankees aren't exactly throwing out a murderer's row either. You know, uh, they're, they're giving us uh, Garcia... I think the best pitcher the Yankees are throwing is Gray, and I think Garcia's pitching in this one, and, well, you know what? We'll go and look it up right now. I had it, and then I lost it. Let's see. Who is pitching tonight? Is it, uh, well, we'll find out. Louis, yeah, Louis Sessa, who, who was part of the Cespedes trade, um, you know, who was a kind of a throw-in. Michael Fulmer was the was the big piece of that trade. Um, stud starting pitcher for the Tigers. Sessa was more of a throw-in. And he's basically, you know, at best a fifth starter, probably, you know, kind of a long man kind of a guy. Um, so he's going. Garcia, Jamie Garcia, and Sonny Gray. And then I forget who the fourth pitcher in the series is. But it's not exactly, again, uh, the Yankees' best four. By any stretch. So, um, but again, the Mets aren't exactly thrown out <laughs> anyone all that good except, of course, for, for DeGrom. Uh, so, anyway, you, listen, if you're a Yankee fan, you, you, you must be thinking you need to get three or four here. And if you're a Mets fan, of course, you want to try to spoil, uh, you know, rain on the Yankees parade a little bit. And, uh, and take three out of four, you'd be thrilled, probably. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see. Right, get back. Let's get back to a little Mets with the Jay Bruce trade last week, which, listen, Sandy Alderson could sit there all he wants and try to tell me and the rest of the, the Mets fans out there that finances had nothing to do with it. Okay, so let me just set the stage. So Mets traded Jay Bruce last week to the Indians, who had just had one of their best outfielders, Michael Brantley, go on the DL, who's a lefty hitter. They already had Lonnie Chisenhall, who's also a lefty hitter, on the DL. They're in desperation mode, right? Indians are finally starting to pull away in the, in the AL Central. They're now four and a half games up on the Twins. All right? But, you know, look, they see that it's time for them to go for it. Jay Bruce is available. He's an Ohio guy. He spent most of his, the bulk of his career with the Reds prior to getting traded to the Mets last year. He's having a phenomenal year for the Mets this year. 29 home runs, 75 RBIs. He's played first base. He's played right field. He can obviously also DH in the, in the American League. It's a great pickup for the Indians. It's a great pickup. 
Now, the Yan- apparently the Mets had two options. They could have traded him to the Yankees, but the Yankees wouldn't have picked up the rest of his salary, which, by the way, is $5 million. We're not talking about $20 million here. Okay? Talking about $5 million for a team that has its own network, that's in New York, that has been the, made the World Series two years ago and made the playoffs last year. Are you going to tell me I'm going to worry about $5 million? So the Yankees said, no, we're not going to pick up all of his salary. We'll pick up half, but we'll give you a choice of two, pro- two out of three prospects. Whereas the Indians said, we'll pick up all the salary, but then you're going to get a single A reliever with a 479 ERA and a kid who has just be- recently been converted from a position player to a pitcher. And so the Mets like his upside. And I, okay, you want to give me that argument? That's that's somewhat fair in that there's some precedent here. Jacob deGrom, similar. He came to pitching later. He was a position player mostly in college. And obviously that's worked out, but that's certainly not... Uh, that's the exception, not the rule. But, I mean, just from a, just from a, a strength in numbers perspective... Okay, again, the Mets are bereft of position players as prospects in their minor league system. Sandy Olsen just traded for four relievers. Now we just added a fifth. And a guy with a 479 ERA at single A? That's the best he could do? What? Because again, because the Indians decided to pick up five million pick up the remaining remaining amount of Jay Bruce's salary. And then, of course, the Mets want to get... And then Twitter, of course, myself included, blows up, criticizes, and then the Mets want to get all sensitive again. Well, show me... You know, it's like James Spader says to, to Robert Downey Jr. less than zero. You know, Julian, show me something different. Okay? Give me a reason, Mets, to believe that it's not always about the money with you and about trying to pinch pennies at every turn. And don't give me, oh, we took on a little salary last year when we traded for Jay Bruce and the year before with Addison Reed. You know, again, you want credit for stuff you're supposed to be doing? The idea is to win when you have a chance. The Madoff thing was in 2008. That's nine years ago. Enough already with the penny-pinching nonsense. I mean, it's like Sandy Alderson. Uh, Listen, I understand sometimes he's handcuffed, I guess, by ownership. And he's got to take the bullet. I get that. He's got to take the hit publicly. But if that wasn't the case, then where's Jeff Wilpon to come out and say, no, no, no. Listen, because here's the thing. The Mets are saving between $10 and $15 million now by trading... They traded Addison Reed. They got basically, you know, so far. I mean, listen again. Uh, the, the, the early returns on the on these guys, how they perform the minors, are not encouraging. But obviously, the jury's way way out on those. I get that. Okay, but they didn't get anybody who's who's going to excite anybody from a from the way, you know the baseball writer standpoint. Nobody's really all that excited about the haul the Mets have received in some of these trades. So all right, they got they got rid of Addison Reed. They got rid of Jay Bruce. They just traded Neil Walker to the Brewers. So they're going to save between $10 and $15 million for the rest of this year. Plus they've got about $65 million 
ostensibly, coming off the payroll next year. So if you're going to tell me this Jay Bruce trade was not about saving money and it was about, you know, we like this player that we got back in the process, okay, then where's one of the owners to come and say, listen, guys, we get it. We're going to have about $75 million next year. We're saving 10 15 this year. We have 65 coming off the books. Don't worry. We will be in on the major free agents that fit a position of need, a.k.a. third base of Mike Moustakis from the Royals, a.k.a. the Mets desperately need a, a, a starting, a young-ish veteran pitcher to fit into that rotation that's going to give them, like a Bartolo Colon had done the last couple of years, that's going to give him 200 innings. Not saying an ace, not one of these idiotic contracts like the Tigers gave to, to Zimmerman or the Giants gave to Zamarja. None of those moronic contracts. But a guy that you're going to give, you know, $45 million for three years, slotted as a three or a four guy in your rotation, and a guy that's healthy, all the, that you know you can count on to give you 200 innings, like an Irvin Santana, for instance, currently with the Twins. Someone like that. You're going to tell me you're going to spend your money that way next year. Well, then okay. But, of course, the Mets' ownership, tone deaf as usual. Nowhere to be found. I mean, I hate to sound like a broken record, constantly criticizing the team, but, I mean, again, tell me something different. Make an effort. Okay? And I mean, just add another little nitpick here. It's interesting. So they finally, finally, after every Met fan on the planet has been screaming for Michael Conforto to stop hitting leadoff, by the way, he's up to 26 home runs. And he's clearly a third-place hitter, right? He's the Mets' best average hitter. He's got their best on-base percentage. And he hits for home runs and he drives and runs. He's the quintessential third-place hitter. And he's a lefty, right? Which you like because if there are guys on base ahead of him, that opens up the hole between first and second base. Yes, I understand with shifts and all that other nonsense now, but Michael Conforto is a guy who sprays the ball all over the field when he's going well. So generally speaking, there's extra room there on the right side of the infield because you've got the first baseman holding a runner on. For 120 years, everybody loves their third-place hitter, if they can, if, if possible, to be a left-handed hitter who hits for average and power and gets on base. That's exactly what Michael Conforto does. Not the Mets. No, 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 no. We're going to bat him leadoff. Because, of course, all their decision-making is fear-based. So it was, God forbid we move him out of the leadoff because he's doing so well there. He might crumble if we put the added pressure of batting in third. Classic Terry Collins. So finally, now that the season is over and done with and is meaningless, they moved him not to the three-hole, to the four-hole. And Cespedes is hitting third, which is about as idiotic as it gets. Of course it should be the other way around. Terry Collins can't even get that right. He can't even get that right. It's unbelievable. I mean, would you just let the guy hit third for the rest of the year, please? And then you know going into next year, he's your third place hitter. Cespedes is your fourth place hitter. All right, you're going to have to figure out, lead off. You're going to need somebody to hit behind Cespedes. I don't know if there's a guy on the roster right now currently that, that, that you could feel confident that would do that. You don't want to probably put Dom Smith in that position just yet. 
Ideally, you'd probably want to bat him about six next year. Maybe you hit Rosario second in front of Conforto, so he gets a lot of fastballs. You know, he's probably not going to be a super high on base percentage guy, at least early in his career. I mean, again, these are not hard decisions. The Mets just seem to never be able to make the right decision. That again, these are, that, that, that should be simple. should be easy. I don't think old Hoss Radburn would approve. <laughs> so, as we go around the majors, let's take a quick look. So, after last night's win over the Yankees, the Red Sox now currently five and a half up, five in the loss column. Again, I mean, I said this last week. I just think the Red Sox are just a little bit better than the Yankees. Not a ton. A little bit better. Although, does bear in mind, the Yankees are getting healthier now. Hicks is back. Starling Castro is not too far away. They're going to get Matt Holiday back, too. So, you know, they've got, I guess, strength. Although, Tanaka just went on the DL and Sabathia's on the DL again. So, but now they've got guys to fill in, like uh, Jamie Garcia. But, you know, Lewis Sess is pitching for them tonight, too. So, and obviously they've, they've, they've certainly bolstered the bullpen and lengthened it with Robertson and Conley to go ahead of Batantis and Chad. But, you know, look, the Yankees' bullpen showed some, 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 some cracks in the armor here. I mean, listen, Batantis, his numbers are insane. I mean, 42 innings, 75 strikeouts, ridiculous, but he's got 35 walks. It's way too many. And now I understand some of that was over the course of like a three or four-game stretch where, you know, he really lost it, and he got a little bit worried maybe that he, you know, he might have Steve Blast disease where he's lost the strike zone completely. And he's bounced back nicely from that. But they've showed a, you know, a couple of cracks here. But I still think the Yankees are getting in as a wild card, and I still think the, Yankees, uh, the Red Sox are going to win the division. And then, you know, Tampa Bay finally looks like they're Finally, just starting to run out of gas. They're 59 and 60 now on their 500 for the first time in a while. Three and seven in their last ten. Orioles had played better, kind of got back in the mix, but not really at 58 and 60. And again, I, I don't want to hear about oh, they're four games out, five games out of the second wild card. I, I can't take you seriously if you're not at least 500. Number one and number two, I don't want to hear about the second wild card. I don't want to hear it. It's not making the playoffs to me. That does not count as making the playoffs. Getting the the privilege of playing maybe a road game, you know, for a one-game play to get to the next... That's not really making the playoffs to me. It's not. And again, the Blue Jays have just never been able to get out of their own way this year. Go over to the AL Central. you got the Indians now. Again, it looks like they're firmly entrenched, 63-52. and 1-3 in a row, 6-4 in the last 10. The Jay Bruce trade, he's already paid dividends. He's got like four RBIs in three games with them already. Um, their pitching is really starting to come around now. Carrasco, Salazar, Bauer, Tomlin. We know they've got the good bullpen. Um, they've had a couple of hiccups too, though. Andrew Miller got hurt and was before that wasn't the automatic that he was you know, with the Yankees and, and then last year with the Indians down the stretch. But Shaw and Allen are still both still pretty good. Uh, they're getting contributions from guys like Austin Jackson. Um, yeah, we I said this months ago. The Indians are the best team in that division. Now give the Twins credit; they're still hanging around at two games over five hundred, and they're eight and two in their last ten. This is after they traded their closer to the Nationals. 
And the Royals are still hanging in there, too, at 59 and 58. So, you know, right now the Yankees would be the first wildcard team at 61 and 55. Out of nowhere, here come the Angels, having won six in a row, to go to 61 and 58, and they would be the second wildcard team. But, I mean, I don't think anybody, I certainly, I know I didn't have the Angels anywhere near. And I know the Angels are frankly one of the worst teams in baseball. And Mike Trout missed like three weeks on the DL. They're easily their best player. And yet, there they stand. Still in the mix. Now, they have the starting pitching probably to, to, to sustain this, but good for them. And Seattle seems to have fallen off. We talked about that last week, especially with uh, King Felix going on the DL. Uh, the Rangers are a joke. They, they, they're not any good. 56 and 60 in the A's, or, you know, the A's. And then the same thing, you know, listen, the National League, you've got the Nationals running away with it in the East. We talked about them. The Central continues to be the most compelling of the division races. The Cubs, you know, every time you think the Cubs are going to go on a roll, then they kind of stub their toe. They're four and six in their last ten, 61 and 55. Cardinals now, of course, have gotten hot. They're eight and two in their last ten. They're only two games back in the loss column, one game overall, 61 and 57. And the Brewers, who again. You know, they, they just they, they had that great first half since the All-Star break. They've not played well, but they're still kind of in the mix at 61-59. They haven't gone away. And the Pirates got hot for a little while there. They've lost their last two. But again, they're 58-60. and 60. Again, get to 500 before I take it seriously. I'm sorry. And then in the West, I mean, here are the Dodgers at, at 50 games over 500, or thereabouts, 49, 83-34. Ridiculous. Eight and two in the. I mean, every time, every week I do a show, they're eight and two in their last ten. Every time. I mean, think about it. They're eighty three and thirty four, and we're in mid August. Still have six weeks to go in the season. So that is probably well. Let's see. We could actually do the math. Eighty three and thirty four is one hundred and seventeen games. So there are forty five games left. If they go 20 and 25, they're going to win 103 games. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how good they are. And now the Rockies and the Diamondbacks, by the way, have started to show uh, some cracks in their armor as well here. Both of them four and six in their last ten. Rockies have lost three in a row. They're having now all kinds of pitching issues. And they are, when it looked like a lock, that, you know, they would be the, the, the one and two as far as wildcard teams were concerned. Not so fast. Because you've got, you know, the Cardinals are five games behind both of those teams in the loss column for the wildcard. You know, five games of 45 to go is not impossible by any stretch. So that bears some watching. Quick side note, by the way. I don't know if you guys saw that there's big... Nationals had avoided a, a major scare, it looks like. Bryce, they played a game over the weekend against the Giants. There was a rain delay. Bryce Harper running hard to first, trying to beat out an infield hit. 
Cleet hits the bag, slips off the bag, looked like he ripped his knee up. Apparently no ligament damage, probably going to be out for two to three weeks, maybe even longer because the Nationals have the luxury of resting him because they have such a big lead. Um, and then now there's, of course, a lot of discussion about, oh, well, the bags themselves are too slippery. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems to be the case. And, you know, my buddy Rob and I were talking about this over the weekend. I mean, you know, I don't. I remember something similar actually happened to me once in high school. We were playing, uh, I want to say it was collegiate, and uh, it was my junior year, and we had a rain delay. It was like probably late April, storm came in, came out real quick. Got back on the field. So this is my junior year. I wasn't much of a baseball player by the time my junior year rolled around. We had a rule in our league where one could pinch run for the catcher, but the catcher could still always stay in the game. So the one thing I could do was run, and I was technically the backup catcher also. So I, uh, I would pinch run for our catcher, who was a stud. I mean, my man, Lath, you know, he started as a sophomore for the varsity baseball team, which is why I became a catcher in the first place, because we needed a catcher for our JV team my sophomore year. Anyway... Uh, so I would go in and pinch run for him. So I go I go in and pinch run, and there's a pop-up, you know, sort of kind of quasi-infield, you know, between, you know, second base and short right field. So I go halfway, you know, expecting it to be caught, you know, but the other team were playing not very good collegiate. It stunk. Uh, the ball drops. I get into, I run hard. I get into second base, but instead of sliding, I go in standing up. My cleat hits the bag, and I slip, and I, I don't fall, but I slide kind of over – Second base, they throw the ball back in behind me. I dive back in, I'm safe. I'm not out, I'm safe. But it looked probably pretty dopey. And I get up and I'm standing on second base and I look in the dugout and all the guys in the dugout are laughing. They're all making fun of me, including the team captain, Joe Yermy. He's making fun of me, he's laughing his ass off. And so I start laughing. So our coach, uh, Mr. Parker, who was uh, you know, sort of our manager or whatever, head coach of the baseball team, he was also the first base coach. He was none too pleased with my reaction, so he took me out of the game. So the pinch runner got pinch run for out of the game. True story. Uh, anyway, my point is is that I think even back then, and this has got to be close to 30 years ago, the bases were still pretty slippery then too, but um, you know, this should not be a hard thing to do. I mean, just you know, listen, they, they figure out how to make a less sort of vulcanizer, you know, rubber ba- bag and, and, and fix it. Um, but anyway, that the whole Bryce Harper thing reminded me of uh, that story. And before we go to break, a belated congratulations to Adrian Beltre uh, for the Rangers getting his 3,000th hit. And a guy who I think will come back from break, will go over his career numbers, who I think should be in the Hall of Fame. Um, but we'll be back. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back right after this. back here on a Monday night edition of Jamal About Sports. That, of course, was Heat Wave with Boogie Nights. I'm sure my man A.G. would appreciate it. By the way, A.G. will be back uh, as we get closer to uh, the fall here. Uh, my, my schedule, if you will, has been uh, such that uh, I've been spending most of my time out east, but when we get back into the, the throes of football season, we'll probably give you a, uh, an NFL preview show prior to the kickoff of the season. 
Um, right now, tentatively like to do probably a Football Friday show once a week, which will be just me solo, and then a Monday wrap-up show about the games that were over the weekend, college and NFL, with AG. So, uh, we'll see if we can make that work. He's in a band, so, you know, that might interfere sometimes with uh, his schedule, but we're going to try to stick to that schedule as much as we can for the uh, for the NFL season. But anyway, uh, wanted to just point out also a couple of interesting uh, guys who I think are having really interesting seasons. So one is Kenley Jansen, the closer for... Um, the Dodgers. His numbers are just absolutely insane. So, as we go to pull them up here, Kenley Jansen in uh, <clears throat> 52 and a third innings. Alright, he's got 32 saves in... I don't. I think he's only blown one save. 52 innings pitched, 30 hits, 5 Listen to, I mean, just listen to this for a second. Five walks, 80 strikeouts. He's given up seven runs. He's got a whip of .67. If you have a whip of one, you're really good. He has a whip of .67, which is walks and hits per innings pitch. That is insane. People say sometimes closers are overrated. Well, again... Dodgers are easily going to win 100 games this year and run away with that division. 80 strikeouts, which is averaging almost 14 strikeouts per nine innings. 52 and a third innings, 30 hits. Unbelievable. Tremendous season from him. Five walks. I mean, how good is that? Yeah, we talked earlier on the show, you, you hate walks in general, but particularly out of your late-inning relief guys coming out of the bullpen late in the game. So that was one season that I, I, I thought bared mentioning. And then the other was uh, Joey Gallo, only because it's a bit of an anomaly of a season. So uh, let's see here. Let's go over to the Texas Rangers as we look around. This horrendous website. Uh, <laughs> there they are, the Texas Rangers. So I don't know if anybody out there is old enough. Well, I'm sure some of you are. Remember Rob Deere, the slugging outfielder DH type for the Brewers? That's the Joey Gallo, basically, although he plays third base for the Rangers. But he has 67 hits, okay? 32 of which are home runs. He has 143 strikeouts and 326 at-bats. He's hitting 206. But he has a 552 slugging percentage. And for his horrendous batting average at 206, his on-base percentage is pretty good at 320 because he has uh, walked 49 times. So he's got an OPS of 872, which is very good. But just think about that. He's got he's got 67 hits. 32 of them are home runs. 13 are doubles. So that's 45 and two triples. So 47 of his 60. So he has 20 singles on the year. <laughs> Joey Gallo has 20 singles, and he struck out 143 times in 326 at bats. I mean, that's that's tough to do. 
But again, meanwhile, the OPS is good. So, I mean, listen, you can't have a whole lineup of guys like that, and that's why the Rangers are having the year they're having, because they kind of do have a whole lineup like that. I mean, Rodnet, Rudnet or Doer, who had a great year for them last year, he's sort of infamous or famous, however you want to look at it, for punching Joey Bats in the face last year. He's got 24 home runs and 53 RBIs. Not very good. Horrible RBI production for 24 home runs, and he's got 111 strikeouts as well in 453 at-bats. You know, I mean, Carlos Gomez has struck out over 100 times already. Since you choose, going to strike out 100 times, he's got 91. Elvis Andrews has 82 strikeout. I mean, that whole lineup, everybody's striking out over 100 times. I don't understand. It's not like the old days. A lot of guys strike out over 100 times, but you can't have. I mean, look, Mike Napoli's already struck out 130 times. Gallo, 143. Odor, 111. Carlos Gomez, 106. Jonathan Lucroy, 88, although they traded him to the Rockies, but, I mean, he was having a lousy season for them. Chu, 91. Delano DeShields, Jr., 73. Elvis Anders, 82. I mean, nobody makes contact on the team. Again, you got to have a few guys in the lineup like that. You can't have everybody like that. But speaking of which, Adrian Beltre is obviously on that team. So let's go ahead and take a quick look at his career numbers. By the way, he's having a fine year. I mean, he was hurt, so he's only played in 64 games. But in the games he's played, he's hitting 311. He's got a 921 OPS, 12 home runs, 48 RBIs, and only 235 at-bats. So, you know, double that, that's 470 at-bats. That's not even a full season. That's 24 home runs and, you know, damn near 100 RBIs. And he's got 26 walks and only 32 strikeouts. And 16 doubles for good measure. And he knows he's going to play... You know, top-notch defense at third base. Just a wonderful player. Had a bit of an odd career. Started out as a phenom with the Dodgers when he was like 19, 20 years old. Had one huge year for them. Got signed to a big contract in Seattle. Did not sort of live up to, you know, the hype or at least the money that he got there. Um, And we'll go ahead and take a look at his career numbers. So his last year with the Dodgers was his best year with the Dodgers. He had 48 home runs and had 121 RBIs. That was in 2004. So let's see. How old is Adrian Beltre? He is 38 years old, and he came up in 1998. Yes, he's been playing, you know. This is his 20th year in the league. So, yeah, I mean, he was he was he's playing 19 years. Yeah, I mean, he's he was 19, I think, when he came up. Then he went to Seattle. So off the... Off the 48 and 121 year, and he hit 334, by the way, the year, he had an OPS of over 1,000, right? And Dodger Stadium, not a hitter's park, right? It was always considered a pitcher's park. Seattle, same thing. But his, his first year in Seattle, 1987, OPS is 716, you know, massive drop off. Then, he, then his second year in Seattle, not bad, 25 and 89, 26 and 99, 25 and 77. Okay, so, so some decent years with Seattle, actually. Uh, his last year there, he was awful. Eight home runs, 44 RBIs. Then he went to the Red Sox for the one year. He had a big bounce back year in 2010. He went 28 and 102. Hit 321. And then ever since he's been on the Rangers, 32 105, 36 102, 30 and 92. 2014, 19 and 77. Okay, not great. 15, 18 and 83. Still pretty good. I mean, and the OPSs are still in the eights, high eights, 880, 880. 
Last year, 32 and 104 with an 879 OPS, hit 300. And then this year, obviously, he was hurt to start the year. But so his career numbers, he's got 457 home runs, 1,600 RBIs. He's got 3,000 hits, obviously. He's scored 1,460 runs. He's probably scored 1,500 runs. Career batting average of 286, and and is that and Gold Glove caliber defense at third base. Uh, that for my money, that's that's a Hall of Famer. I think Adrian Beltre is for sure a Hall of Famer. All right, switching gears over to the NFL. So lots of storylines to discuss actually uh, very early on here. The first of which is actually we're going to start with some of the light stuff first, and we'll get to the heavy stuff. So the first is the the Bills made a couple of interesting trades I thought over the weekend, uh, trading Sammy Watkins. Um, to the Rams for a cornerback, E.J. Gaines, and I believe a second-round pick in next year's draft. And a lot of people are kind of killing them for that, which I find interesting because I understand that the Bills idiotically, by the way, traded up uh, you know, three or four years ago in the draft to get Sammy Watkins. Um, and, uh, you know, he hit and, – and he was – you know, he, he's a big name. What has Sammy Watkins ever done for the Bills? What have the Bills ever done since Sammy Watkins has been there? I mean, I, I, I you know, I'm just, I'm, I, I'd love to know. Well, let's just see if he's already off their roster, and if I got to look him up now on the Rams, I guess I do. But I want to take a quick look at his career numbers. First of all, the guy's always hurt. Okay, the guy's always, always hurt. Never, never sees the field. Plays about five games a year, or so it seems. And that's why we're gonna, we're gonna look this up and get to it soon. Uh, if I can figure out how to uh, find uh, okay can, can we can we go can we go to teams no no we can't huh nah you guys aren't interested all right hold on just hang tight we'll get there eventually uh, roster for the Rams and let's see. You see, I'm probably not doing this the right way. Let's see, stats. I'll do that. Okay. Yeah, no, that's not going to do it. I should have done it the other way. How about we just do this? Sammy <laughs> Watkins. How about that, genius? Okay. And now we can try to find his career numbers. Okay, so in 2015, he had a decent year. 60 catches, 1,000 yards, and 9 touchdowns. Decent. Nice average per catch, 17-5. Last year, 28 catches, 430 yards, 2 touchdowns. He was hurt. Barely played. Right? For his career, I think he came in the league when? In 2014? He's got 2,400 yards and 17 touchdowns. I mean, he's okay. This is not Calvin Johnson we're talking about, people. This is not Des Bryant. This is not Julio Jones. This is not A.J. Green. This is not an elite-level receiver. Just because the Bills, again, idiotically traded up into the top of the first half of the first round to get him in that draft doesn't mean that that's who he is as a player. 
And, by the way, they just drafted Zay Jones out of East Carolina, who AG and I loved coming out of the draft. And then they went and got Jordan Matthews from the Eagles, who's an up-and-coming good young receiver. So plus, they're going to have two picks in the first three rounds of next year's draft. They're going to have two first-round picks, two second-round picks, two third-round picks. I don't think... Listen, I... You know, they just... They have a new coach. They have a new GM. I don't think they're under any illusions that they're going to win now. They're setting themselves up. It's a smart move. And they're getting killed for it. And I don't understand it at all. So that's number one. Number two, watch some of Deshaun Watson play in his preseason game. Looked very good. Now, I get it. It's preseason. You take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. But he looked very good. Looked poised in the pocket. He has a good arm. Obviously mobile. Had one rushing touchdown. Uh... I'd be surprised if he's not the starting quarterback. And, and in fact, I don't see how he can't be the starting quarterback. The Spoles are going to have a good run game, and they have a good defense. Don't put too much on his plate. Look, we saw the Cowboys do it last year with Dak Prescott. No reason why he can't do the same. Thirdly, Mitch Trubisky looked pretty good for the Bears. Again, a little bit of a grain of salt, but certainly, you know, considering Michael Lennon's first pass the preseason was returned for an interception return for a touchdown. Uh, but Trubisky looked pretty good. But again, you know, he probably did it against a lot of guys that aren't going to be in the league in week one. But at least he wasn't a total disaster if you're a Bears fan after they traded up, you know, one spot to get him. And then after giving Mike Lennon $15 million a year. And then uh, Roberto Aguayo, who may be the dumbest draft pick in the history of the NFL, kicker out of Florida State that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers... Not only did they draft him in the second round, which is beyond idiotic, uh, they traded up into the second round to get him. And so, of course, the Bears just signed him. Now, listen, he's a talented kid. He had a very good career in college. He's got a big leg. We've talked about this a lot with kickers. You know, they're like they're little, they're like relief pitchers in baseball. We say this. You know, sometimes year to year, one year great, one year maybe not so great. Guys bounce around team to team. They find their niche, change the scenery. But I'll give the Buccaneers credit for admitting their mistake. That's not an easy thing to do. I won't even bore you with any of my opinions about what the Lions did in their first preseason game, except to say keep an eye on Kenny Galladay, the third-round pick out of Northern Illinois wide receiver. And if you're a fantasy player, he could be a good sneaky, very late-round pick for you. Could be a red zone stud. All right. The big news of the day is Ezekiel Elliott and getting suspended for six games for violating the league's conduct code when it comes to domestic violence. Now, this is a very, I think, tricky and interesting case here. So, uh, his girlfriend, and this is one, by the way, this is before he came into the NFL. This is when he was still in college. Or maybe he was in between college and the NFL, but he was not in the pros yet. Uh, his girlfriend uh, alleged physical abuse. There was an investigation done by the police department in Ohio, I think in Columbus. They did not. They they decided that there was not enough evidence to proceed with any kind of a charge. Uh, he was not indicted. He was not charged. Nothing. And yet the NFL still felt justified in giving him a six-game suspension. Now couple things here. There's a lot of he said, she said here. 
the NFL clearly because they've gotten it so wrong in the past. Ray Rice, Greg Hardy is now, and rightfully so, by the way, going to err on the side of caution. When it comes to this kind of stuff, it took them long enough, but okay. Now, that's a little sauce. If you're a Cowboys fan, I get it. And if you're Ezekiel Elliott himself. So, apparently this investigation has turned up a couple of things. He has claimed, and there are witnesses that back his claim, that he basically, what his, his, his side of the story is, he broke up with her, she didn't want to break up with him, she didn't handle it well, and so her response was to say, I'm going to ruin your career. I'm a white girl, you're a black athlete, no one's going to believe me, I mean, no one's going to believe you. And there are people who corroborate that story that he's putting out there. Which, if that is true, this is a horrible, horrible thing that's happening to him. However, the flip side of the coin, and the date in which she said, I guess, he physically abused her, one of those dates, there was no evidence that that happened. However, apparently, as per the NFL's investigation, there are photos that indicate that there was some physical abuse. Now, was it at, that was it at the hands of Ezekiel Elliott? That's that's what they're going to have to prove, I guess. But see, that this is where it gets tricky. The NFL doesn't have to prove anything. They're giving him a six-game suspension. Again, he's not going to jail. He's not even indicted. There's no charges here, and yet he's missing almost half the season. Now he has the right to appeal, which he has done. I doubt very seriously. Unless this woman is found to be completely, have zero credibility, if the NFL continues to further investigate, which, by the way, they owe it to him to do. And if they show that, in fact, she made up all of this, well, then he shouldn't serve one game. And she, frankly, should be prosecuted. Probably, as is often the case in situations like this, the truth probably does lie somewhere in the middle, unfortunately. But it's interesting that the NFL can pretty much act with impunity here. And that the players agree to this. And I understand Jerry Jones is furious, and listen, I think I made my position on Jerry Jones pretty clear. I can't stand the guy. Okay. And I thought, again, not to rehash it, but his defense of Ezekiel Elliott last week was pathetic. It was pitiful. Typical enabler, excuse maker. But Elliott's father has come out and said, we look forward to fighting this. Again, apparently there are people out there and listen, more and more information is coming in. There might be more stuff coming in since I've been doing the show that I don't know about. So if I miss something, I apologize. You know, again, the bigger issue here, of course, is if in fact there was physical abuse, I mean, you know, it has to stop. I mean, this stuff just has to stop. 
it's incredible to me that that could ever even happen. But particularly in light of what has happened recently in the league, the sport in which he plays. I mean, I can't understand that mindset of a man putting his hands on a woman, unless, of course, it was in self-defense or defense or born with a gun or knife or something. And I mean, it's just, you know, I'm not saying it's never justified. You know, there are extreme situations, of course. So this is going to be very interesting. I think this will be a very interesting test case to see. And then also, again, if it turns out that she did make all of this stuff up out of spite and revenge, because she was, you know... And listen, again, I don't know that that's the case. That's his side. Again, the NFL's investigation did show up evidence that there was some physical abuse. And if it was done by him, then six games, (laughs) absolutely, all for it. But if for some reason it turns out that his side is the side... Be interesting to see what happens. What happens moving forward, as far as the players being uh, <laughs> accepting of the NFL being able to again deliver their own brand of justice, even after the authorities determined that there was no, no case there or not enough evidence. Which, again, to be fair, in in instances of domestic violence. Oftentimes it's tricky because, you know, a lot of times women do recant and or feel intimidated and don't tell the whole story. So, you know, there's a lot of that there, too. It's it's a very, listen, it's a highly complex issue, obviously. What's obviously not complex is you don't hit a woman, you don't put your hands on a woman. But the other things are complex. All right, that's going to do it for tonight's show. As always, thanks for listening. Check me out on Twitter, at JamalAboutSport. No S at the end. I also, of course, I'm on iTunes, Jamal About Sports Podcast, and also on Facebook. Thanks for listening. Peace out.